and welcome to Conversations with Scientists. I'm Vivian Marks. I interview many researchers for my stories, and these podcasts are a way to present more of what I hear and find out. Today, I would like to introduce you to two researchers. Dr. Uri Manner is a researcher at the Salk Institute who studies the dynamics of cells, and Ali Putnam, who is a PhD student at University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Uri Manor and Ali Putnam work in different fields and they are at different career stages. What they have in common is that they both have faced and continue to face adversity. They face an adversity of the more invisible kind because it's about their life in science as people with disabilities. They face adversity head on with strength, creativity and humor. They are in a story I did for Nature Methods, and I thought I would share a bit more about them. Uri Manor at Salk Institute uses microscopy of all kinds, molecular and computational tools, to study cells. He is also hearing impaired and talked with me about how this disability made it difficult for him to stay interested in school and made it hard for him to find friends. But he found creative ways to find his path in science, and one aspect that mattered a lot and that might be surprising is music. Uri Manor talked about life in high school as a hearing-impaired person. I was at my peak in high school. It was what saved me in a lot of ways. We've mentioned it before, I'm hearing-impaired, and so much of uh, pedagogy and, and schools is listening to a teacher, and it takes so much effort for me to hear even to this day, but even more so when I was younger, even though my physical hearing has gotten worse because everyone loses hair cells over time, they don't regenerate, your hearing only gets worse with time. But my brain has gotten better because I've got more familiarity with the English language and with communication. So I can do a better job of inferring what I didn't hear. So I can actually hear better now than I could in high school. Technically, my hearing was better in high school. Uri Manor wears hearing aids. He was born with impaired hearing that wasn't detected until he was two years old. He is now an accomplished scientist, but he had a tough time in school, which he generally didn't enjoy. You know, high school, relatively speaking, is still easy enough that I could read the book and pass a test and I could figure out how to do the homework. I wasn't great. I was actually a bad student because not only did I not get a lot out of the classes, I also didn't find most of the material very interesting. I was extremely bored. So I, I got pretty bad grades, you know, and my father was a professor. Uh, my mother's father was a teacher, you know, so education is super important in my family. And I'm bringing home C's and B's, you know, C's. And, and my parents, you know, would regularly ground me whenever I brought home a bad report card and I would, you know, be punished and, It didn't really seem to work. It didn't help that much. It wasn't a great motivator. I just didn't care. Mm. I really didn't. Um, I was also, you know, as as a hearing impaired person, I was very socially isolated because I couldn't just hop into a crowd of people hanging around joking and participate in the conversation. I couldn't hear what they were saying. I missed a lot of jokes. And I think actually, oddly, Um, A lot of my peers, especially when I was younger, thought I was dumb, you know, deaf and dumb, because uh, the way I hear is I don't hear everything, but I connect the dots. And when you're younger and you're still learning how to do that, it means your reaction is slow because someone will say something 
and I'll hear one third of it. And then I'll sit there and try to think through all the possibilities of what they meant. And then I'll respond with, let's say, 80, 90% accuracy. That 80 to 90% accuracy would make conversations and banter in a group difficult. So if it's a joke or if it's something silly, you know, it takes you. Hmm. A question, you know, like, hey, or do you like that uh, thing over there? Or what do you think of that bear? And my, my ear, because I don't hear consonants, would hear pear, tear, there, or bear. Like, which one would, did they mean? And then I've got to think about what do I think about it, and then I've got to answer. So even if I hear them correctly, I answer much, much more slowly, which, which with kids means the conversation has already moved on, or they're wondering what's wrong with me. Why, am I, why, why was it so hard to answer that question? One-on-one was always better for me. Um, always easier, always easier, because there's less background noise and I could really focus and they knew that, well, they, you could sort of sense what's going on with me, but in a group where you've got distracting people competing for attention, it was right. hopeless for me. And, and then sometimes I even get it wrong, right? Sometimes that 20% of the time, I, I didn't hear them correctly and I would say something absurd and they would laugh and I would be offended and then I have to decide, am I gonna admit that I misheard or because I was really, insecure about my disability. I wanted to be, you know, accepted as equal to everyone else. Of course, of course. That makes and sense. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to admit that I had this debilitating uh, disability. So I was very often compensating and not admitting that I had hearing loss. And then I would be like, no, no, that's what I meant. I was just kidding or whatever. You know, like I, I did all kinds of really weird, wacky, stupid stuff that kids do. Or at least I did as a kid. When you have a disability, it sets you apart from others in many ways. You are different, which is not what you want when you are a teenager and you want to fit in with others. I think as we get older, um, and this was true with my parents too, you start to appreciate more being original, being unique. So the advice I was always getting from my parents was, doesn't matter if you're the same or not. Like, you should be proud to be who you are, which is true. But as a kid, you don't hear that. You just want to fit in and you want to have friends and you want, you know, there's a very deep biological, psychological need to be accepted because, you know, in the ancient times, if you weren't accepted as part of the clan, you were dead. You were literally dead. So it felt like death to not be accepted in the group. And that's what I felt most of my childhood so I was extremely depressed and when you're depressed and when you're struggling to hear the information I did not care about school I did not give a shit and so I wasn't a very good student and I'm not sure anyone would have predicted that I would actually be successful at academia right it's uh it's quite a quite a contrast but the thing that saved me was guitar I started wanting to learn how to play guitar and I loved music Music, unlike people, I can turn up the volume and if I didn't hear something, I can rewind it and listen to it again. There are things that I can do with music that I couldn't do with people. And music is amazing. You know, like I obviously have some sort of um, appreciation for math and for order and all of that's in music. So I fell in love with guitar and music theory and electric guitar in particular. I could turn up the volume again and jam. And that was my outlet. So I played a lot of guitar. I love that comment about how you can't 
turn up the volume with people, but you can do so with guitar. Uri Manor loved guitar, and it was a social tool for him, too. That's what saved me socially was I made friends who also played and played in a band. And that then I finally had a group of friends who valued me because I was maybe one of the best guitar players in, in our high school. Uh, but, I, but I'll also say, um, you know, my parents were worried about my school. And they decided finally to try the carrot instead of the stick. And they said, we know you want a Les Paul. If you get straight A's, we will buy you a Les Paul. So that is the one semester where I got straight A's. It's a beautiful guitar. I fell in love with it watching Slash play it on MTV. I was like, this sounds so good. It looks so cool. That's the guitar I want. Now, as a working scientist, he doesn't have quite as much time for guitar. Not as much, right? I was playing four hours a day. I I don't have time for that, right? Science is a full-time job, and then some. And and then I've got a family. I, I try to be home for dinner every single night and then put my daughter to bed and you know, the, there's there's no time. So I, I just don't play nearly as much, which means I'm not nearly as good as I used to be. I've got five guitars at home. I've got a <laughs> classical guitar. I've got a acoustic for strumming. And then I've got my Les Paul still. I've got a shredder, 24 fret, you know, Jackson electric, and I've got a 12 string. He is serious about music and also about the tools he uses in his science. Since he develops tools that involve deep learning approaches and inference, I wondered if that might connect to his daily task of inferring what people say due to his hearing impairment. That's a really interesting idea um, that I hadn't thought about until I was talking to you about it. When I said the word infer, right, because that's what deep learning does, is right? it runs inference. And one of my friends in high school once told me, for some reason, he thought I was really smart. And uh, he said, I think the reason you're smart is because of your hearing loss. I think it gave you an ability to run logic. It gave you a, a, a certain type of logic that most people don't have or, or exercise. I'm paraphrasing, of course, which was a very long time ago. In speaking with scientists about their disability, it seems that they developed new senses and new sensibilities. So I asked Uri Manor about that. The other thing that those experiences did for me, this is almost, I mean, pure self-promotion and I feel like I'm about to congratulate myself. My struggles with being able to make sense out of uh, unclear information has given me a passion for education and training people and explaining concepts. I've always placed a huge amount of importance in being able to break things down into simple terms. And I know I don't always meet that job and I've got a lot of work to do, but it's a goal of mine is to be able to explain things so that it could be understood by a five-year-old, you know? Um, And then the other thing is just recognizing that people come from different places. And so my passion for diversity and giving people who haven't had the same opportunities opportunities is really important to me as well. Understanding diversity and appreciating diversity are part of how he interacts with the world. He appreciates the adversity that others have faced and still face. They might be ridiculously creative people, right? You know, they may have all these strengths and potential there that's just totally untapped. And it's, it's, a, it's a huge shame um, that you know, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic, which is a great time to think about 
the types of challenges and the fragility of the human race and just how much work we have to do to really unlock all the potential. And I think, you know, life is way better than it was 100 years ago or, or more, of course, and we've done a great job of making the world a better place for human beings, but we've got so much more work to do. And for that, we need to harness all of human potential, which means all of human individuals. And we're not doing a great job now, but I think people are finally recognizing that the time is right to do that, at least most people. I'm super excited. I'm an optimist by nature. I'm a technophile by nature. I wouldn't be here without my hearing aids. So the whole concept of tools making life a better place is a deep part of me. Um, and so when I hear horror stories about AI or nuclear energy or all of these things that have like clear dual use and danger, I always tend to be biased towards the optimistic uh, approach that we can really make life better uh, right. and, and improve the world in spite of the dangers. I think the dangers are problems to be solved, not reasons to avoid. Right. But it sounds like you're, you're, you're a technophile, but you also uh, understand uh, beyond just this technology will help or that technology. You also understand when it comes to people that there are things that have happened to them that might involve shame. You know, shame yeah. about not being able to run because one leg is shorter than the other or mm. shame about, um, you know, having a skin color that wasn't like the other kids. Um, Insecurity. Uh, but that, that brings up another point. I, I really like the, the running analogy is um, this concept of adversity that I feel like science in, in particular and almost any endeavor any, any expertise or um, effort to get better at something requires the ability to deal with adversity and to conquer adversity and, and, and confront it. And for that reason alone, I think a lot of people who didn't have the fortune that other people had may be the most well-equipped to actually and become the most talented, uh, powerful people in the world. Because, because they had adversity. Adversity can make people the most powerful in the world. How cool is that? That was Uri Manor, researcher at the Salk Institute. Next, I would like to introduce you to Allie Putnam, who is a PhD student at University of Massachusetts at Amherst. I am, you know, passionate about accessibility issues in STEM and all the other issues in STEM. It's like one of the many other issues that I think about and care about so many things, right? So um, my name is Allie Putnam. I use she, her pronouns. Um, and um, I am a fourth year PhD candidate um, in the Organismic and Evolutionary Biology program at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Um, I identify as a marine ecologist, but like my, like that's my broad term that I'll use when I'm talking to like all scientists, like, you know, a, a physicist or someone, or my friends who are engineering, like I know I can say I'm a marine biologist, marine ecologist, and they like know what that means. Um, when I talk to uh, like 
everyday folks. Um, I say that I'm a scientist. <laughs> uh, I just start there and then they say, oh, what kind of science do you do? And I'll be like, oh, I, I study the ocean and I study the, the organisms that are at the coast. When you go visit the rocky um, shore in New England, I study all the seaweeds and the crabs and all the things that you look at um, when you are exploring the beach. Um, and I study why that space looks the way that it does and then how climate change might change how that looks over time. When I talk to marine folks, I usually describe that. Um, I am a marine ecologist who is interested in species interactions um, in the rocky intertidal of New England, um, species interactions between invertebrates and algae or invertebrates together, um, and how climate change may alter species interactions and community composition, um, and trying to figure out why, how, what are the mechanisms, um, and, um, and that like, really i don't tend to put myself in like one bucket i describe to like my marine folks that like i am interested in um you know non-native species and species that are shifting their range due to climate change or human transportation um but i don't consider myself a invasion biologist or a marine invasion biologist i have a focus on that i have an interest in that um I like to use methods that involve laboratory work to get at physiological responses to climate change components like temperature, but I don't consider myself a marine ecophysiologist. I don't only focus on the physiology of organisms. Um, so cool. Yeah. And by the way, I hear your kids and that's totally fine. They're also on the recording. If you need to leave for any reason, you're out. Okay. If they oh, need you. you and they're like, mom, open this. I want a snack or whatever. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. I think one of them, um, is on his online class. Uh, so he should be occupied for the next hour. And then the other one is done, um, for the day. So she, it sounds like she's upstairs playing with the piano and singing very loudly. <laughs> Um, I don't know if I mentioned in my email to you that I homeschool. I homeschool because um, my immunocompromised status leaves me vulnerable to sending my kids off to a, the Petri dish that is public schools. No, I love public schools, but they, my kids were always bringing home germs, you know, prior. And now with COVID, um, we had to make some decisions about how to be able to, um, you know, move forward with life on a really strong immunosuppressant medication um with during a pandemic where kids in schools are not masking and thing kids pick up germs anyways because they're in close contact and so we are homeschooling while i'm doing a phd <laughs> well i'll tell you that um you know sometimes i get challenged with uh you know doing statistical analyses for my research but there's been nothing like scrubbing off my brain to teach sixth grade algebra um, <laughs> that I haven't thought about in a long time. Like all of us, Allie Putnam has faced the pandemic, but her health has meant she needs to make all sorts of arrangements. I shifted my PhD to be mostly um, field-based uh, because I knew that I could be safe physically from potential COVID 
um, uh, uh, oh, brain. <laughs> Exposure. <laughs> there we go. That was the word I was looking for. Sorry, this might happen a few times. Um, I have, I have Crohn's disease, right? Um, I have a um this GI immune um immune system dysfunction. Um, but my immune system and how it behaves with my gastrointestinal tract, um, it also impacts my brain. Um, and last year I was having some really strange um symptoms about like. I couldn't find words. I could like see the word, but I couldn't like say it. Um, and so I uh, went and had an MRI and it showed that I had a whole bunch of white matter changes in my brain um, and some lesions. Um, and so I started seeing a neurologist and a whole year later, we've come to the fact that the same immune dysfunction with my Crohn's is happening in my brain. Um, and so I've got inflammation in my GI tract, but I also have inflammation in my brain. Um, and so sometimes I might struggle to find a word while we're talking. Um, so uh, with my brain condition, um, I often feel like I'm going to say the wrong thing or not say it appropriately or say it clearly or most articulately around my really esteemed colleagues. And so then it can feel really isolating in that I don't maybe I won't say something and then they and then I like panic. I'm like, oh, gosh, I think I'm not smart enough because I didn't like contribute to the conversation when really I was trying so hard to like figure out how to say what it is that I was thinking. And uh, so that's definitely been a challenge with my brain condition to be like, I know I I know I know things and I know I I can um, think about things well. It's just being able to like get it out takes a little bit more time. I, I don't just I can't like bring it out of my mouth as quick as someone who like shoots their hand up and says something like amazingly brilliant. Um, and I'm over here like, oh, what's the word for like tile? <laughs> like I, I can say this. I know I can. Um, so yeah, it's a slower process and and it can be embarrassing. I almost feel more embarrassed about my brain than I do about my Crohn's, to be honest, because Man, like I'm with a whole, um, you know, group of people who are just so smart and so intelligent and uh, can communicate really well. Um, and it's a little bit harder for me to communicate as quickly. It's definitely been a struggle over the last couple of years because I like had my this all kind of started with my brain probably in like uh, spring end of spring of 2020 and then like i didn't have a final diagnosis until um until like february of this year of like because i had to go through all the testing i had spinal tap i had all the mris they look they did all the stuff um so it took a long time to get to a place of like oh this is what it is um and in the meantime just being like sorry I'm sorry that I'm struggling with communicating with you about marine snails right now, but I've got a big old white matter lesion on the front of my brain. It's that. That's why <laughs> I do get some headaches and it it makes me really tired. Um, and like I would say that the headaches are not nearly as frustrating, though, as like wanting to try to articulate something um, in a in a better manner than like plain simple words that just can come out because that's all I can figure out how to get out of my head. Um, so, but the Crohn's itself is definitely the more like painful, frustrating, uh, well, it's all frustrating, but in terms of pain, um, the Crohn's is 
is the more painful because it also isn't even just in my GI tract. Like you feel it in your, you, like it affects your joints and, and your muscles. And um, so, but yeah, it's definitely been an interesting journey with my health because like once, you know, I figure I've, I've figured out that I have Crohn's disease. Yes. And I've been living with that for 12 years, but then like other things change and you thought you had a handle on what was going on with you. And then you learn more things about your health as it evolves. Um, and then like figuring out how to live anew after you like come up with your new symptoms. Crohn's disease, brain inflammation, two children who need to be homeschooled due to her immune system vulnerabilities, a PhD. Allie Putnam has her hands kind of full, but she is also determined about all of these things, which makes me admire her willpower and strength. I certainly have days where I'm like, I can't do this. Like, I can't keep up with the people in my field. I can't keep up with um, you know, this intensity of field work or, or like, I'm, I'm not physically and mentally like good enough for all of these things. And I don't fit in the, the puzzle anymore because of these things. Um, and then, so those days totally exist. Um, and then I have days where I'm like, okay, we've got to like, keep going. Like, this has been your dream forever. Um, and there are people out there who, you know, can do these things too. And if you keep going, then, you know, you might be able to help someone else realize that they can keep going. Um, and so I think that it's like a up and down swing, um, but oscillation between those things that those thought processes, um, but that overall, um, you know, I, I really love um, science. Um, I really love the intersection between science and people um, and science and education, because I think that, you know, I have things to contribute to the scientific community um, around issues of marine um, ecology and climate change, but that there are young folks um, coming up behind me or folks who are older who decide to go back to school because they are refiguring themselves out who have like even bigger capacity for contributing to science that like I want to help you know foster those people so I don't always look at myself as like oh I'm going to be the best scientist in the world like I want to be a really good scientist who contributes to um to the scientific community but I also want to be someone who um, helps foster and promote the upcoming scientists and, you know, like scientists with disabilities, like, because they have so much to, to offer to the scientific community. Before getting a bit more into Allie Putnam and her fieldwork, I asked her about any advice she might have to give to other people, perhaps people who are looking at PhD programs or graduate programs of other kinds, as they figure out if a university and a program will accommodate them, appreciate their disability, and help them through the program. She recommends asking about the culture of the program, asking about affinity groups. I think there's like two thoughts I have. Um, one is that I think for the the person themselves, I think it's important to like really do as much diving into information as they can, you know, searching websites to see what kind of um, affinity groups exist in the department that you are looking to join. 
um, you know, talking with other students in the program that you might be interested in and coming up with questions and asking, you know, about what type of resources exist for students, you know, needing X, Y, or Z. Um, and so like really asking a lot of questions, like don't be afraid to, to reach out to the lab, lab members of the person that you might be interested in joining uh, because they have information that they can share with you. Don't be afraid to reach out to students in the program that you are interested in joining because um, you know, they, will, they will also have information on the culture of the program and the institution. And so I think, um, you know, asking a lot of questions, which like I think we all as scientists like naturally are very question, you know, inquisitive and have a lot of questions. And so apply that to uh, the people, the programs and the departments and institutions that you're looking at. Um, but then I also think that the like flip side of the coin is that the institution, the program, the the department, the PI should be transparent about what it is that they are, um, what uh, levels of support that they have, what types of groups that, you know, affinity groups might be part of the program or department, um, like that, that they also need to do the work too, like they should do the work too, so that it's not only on the student to like grind through meeting tons of people and asking tons of questions, which can you know, could be a little bit vulnerable of a situation for the student and could be overwhelming, could be a little bit scary. Um, so I think it's a little bit of both, like that the student should try to reach out, but I really encourage um, institutions and departments and programs and PIs to to describe some of those things online, um, you know, honestly and transparently. Sometimes someone might find a PhD program or graduate program, but then still need to make changes. I made an advisor switch um, last fall. Um, and my advisor, my current advisor, Dr. Michelle Stottinger, um, she runs a phenology lab. So um, about like, you know, timing of, of an organism's life history and, and how they go about doing things in the world. Um, she has been, you know, really fantastic about, um, you know, supporting my my needs through this thing that we're calling a PhD in a pandemic. <laughs> PhD in a pandemic is a special kind of PhD program. The pandemic has changed some of the fundamentals of education and training in such massive ways. Really, like it, I feel like I've had to restart my PhD three times because um, I started my PhD uh, the semester before the pandemic um, started, so fall of 2019, uh, and then the pandemic happened in the spring, and and all the plans that I had planned for the <laughs> that whole year were gone, and and so yeah. Um, it's been quite an interesting thing to operate um, through um, the this pandemic. I'm so sorry. I need to stop my dog from barking. Sorry about that. Just wanted to get her quiet because I don't think that was going to stop. <laughs> Someone knocking at the door and she just got very upset about it. She's a, a nine-year-old, almost 10-year-old greyhound. The lab that I'm in is allowing me to pursue, to finish, to pursue and finish given my complication with my health and the pandemic and the flexibility that I need because of that, you know? Um, I think like as an immunocompromised person, I'm immunocompromised because of my Crohn's disease, but then I also 
take a, I get a monthly IV infusion to turn my immune system like off. <laughs> um, wow. so, so I'm extra compromised. Um, so I don't, you know, go on campus, which has 25,000 people on it. UMass Amherst is a very big college. Yeah, it's definitely a pretty dangerous um, world there for me. Um, you know, masking isn't mandatory and um, I can wear my mask. But if we've got a whole like big clouds of COVID everywhere um, where there's just a lot of people, it's just a very populated place. So, you know, the chances of exposure are higher for me. So um, I need needed and need flexibility around, you know, remote access um, and timing of things because taking getting my infusion takes time. Uh, it takes a whole day um, and then it hits me pretty hard and I need to kind of rest the next day. So I'm not, you know, totally a hundred the next day. Um, and I've been on medication, you know, a different immunosuppressant um, that took me a whole week to recover and I would get once every two months, but it takes a whole week of my time that, you know, then like, how do you, that's where the flexibility part comes in is like, you know, um, having someone who understands that there are days that like some stuff gets done and some days where not a lot of stuff gets done. And then there are some days where a lot gets done. And then, um, so you know, my, my lab and my advisor, um, you know, I, I've always been really upfront and honest about my, my health and my, and my disabilities. Um, because, uh, I think that's just my personality to, to talk about those things. And also I I've learned that if I don't advocate for myself, um, that there's not a lot of people who will advocate for me, um, especially if they don't know, so I automatically go into like advocation mode of like, okay, here, this is who I am. Like I, I, I'm come straight up front when I meet you, like this is who I am. This is what I got going on. This is what I can do. This is what I want to do. Like, how can we make this work together? Um, and my advisor has been really fantastic about understanding that I homeschool my kids and, you know, giving me the flexibility to, um, you know, for deadlines and, working at my own time, you know, pace and whatnot. Um, and that then my other research is all, you know, field-based. Um, and the, the ocean, the tides are not as flexible with me as my advisor is. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do all, all my research uh, out, outside and, you know, she's great about making sure I have what I need to do what I need to do. And, um, you know, is great uh, financial support um, in terms of, you know, funding me um, and, you know, the work that we do together. Um, is, is great. You know, she creates a, a space for me to be able to say, Hey, like I, you know, I'm not able to do X, Y, or Z right now because I've got, you know, my immunosuppressant today, or I have not been feeling good. Um, and so me just like letting her know and giving her that heads up and communication, you know, is really key for a successful uh, working relationship, um, given my complications. Cause you know, we don't see each other every day in the hallway, you know? So like, she's not gonna know if I'm dying on my couch, like with my heating pad on my stomach, like unable to sit at my desk, um, you know? So I have to communicate those things and, and you know, she's great about hearing those things. 
An important decision a scientist with disabilities has to make is what to tell others in the lab and when to do so. I'll say like, hey, like, you know, when I first met them, like I've got Crohn's disease, like just so you know, like if I got to rush off for some reason, like I'm running down the hall, like get out of my way, like, or, you know, I rush off from my Zoom, my Zoom call. Um, But then also uh, it helps, you know, to to share that type of stuff because everybody has their own level of stuff that they've got going on. Right. Um, and so I've, I've noticed that when I share my, my health issues that then some people feel a little more comfortable saying like, Oh, I've got some things going on too. Like, thanks for saying that. Like I, you know, I actually didn't know I needed to do only remote lab meetings, like, and how helpful it was, you know, um, As I spoke with Ali Putnam, I learned how many layers there are to being a researcher with health conditions like hers. She talked openly about self-care and mental health. One thing that I've noticed about like doing science in this type of of way, you know, as a research scientist um, is that, you know, the boundaries of your time and your thoughts are not always so strong. Like, you know, it's not like five o'clock and you shut off your computer. Sometimes I do. I really try hard to like, you know, put boundaries up. But, um, you know, you like think about your research at three o'clock in the morning or like you've got a deadline for something or, you know, so the boundaries are a little squishy sometimes. Um, And so then you realize that like your job and your life and your health and your your world are all really interconnected. And so if if you're not able to like take care of yourself and really, really get the support that you need, sometimes like various parts of your job suffer or you suffer because you're you're putting too much to the job and it's not, you know, you're not taking care of yourself in the process. And so, um, you know, I think work-life boundaries are really important and work-life balance is really important. Um, But also that like your job and your, who you are, like they interplay with each other. So, um, you know, if like, if that whole person is not, you know, supported um, in ways that the job wants the whole person there, then how can you really like, bring your best work and how can you meet certain objectives and needs. Um, This seems so wise and helpful to remember how work and life interplay. For me, the stuff going on with my health, you know, and my disability, like it's a forever thing. It's, it's not, it's not curable. Nothing is like, I'll have good days and I'll have really bad days and I'll be in the hospital at one time and I'll be able to like, climb a mountain another time um that's that is no i mean uh, there might i mean it's hard to say of course but there might be right. you know, sort of at least better treatments and, and yes things, right uh, i'm grateful for the medication that exists you know right now i know biological immunosuppressants you know have some um complications to them um for sure uh but they definitely have allowed me to live my life a little bit more normally um and then and then i was on a different immunosuppressant during the spring of 2020 right before the pandemic happened that um gave me pancreatitis i had an allergic reaction to it and i was in the hospital for like a week and a half the type of disability she faces has so many dimensions is painful and difficult i wondered how she can do her field work for her research project 
So I have um, three different regions that I work in, and I'm so glad New England is as small as it is <laughs> um, because I um, do, I have field sites um, in Long Island Sound on the Connecticut coast. Um, I have field sites in Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island, so upper Narragansett Bay and then down at the point um, at the bottom of Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island. Uh, and then I also work out in Boston Harbor on the Boston Harbor Islands, which that is a little bit more challenging to bring my toilet because I've got to drive there and then get on a boat and there's only so much space on the, our little boat. Um, so, um, yeah, so I drive a lot um, and, uh, you know, during the um, beginnings of the pandemic, it was a really challenging period um, to be able to go to my field sites and find a safe bathroom, um, you know, that I could, I didn't want to expose myself, you know, in a rest stop um, or in a gas station. Uh, so I would either have my travel toilet that I'd bring, or I like knew exactly where every single porta potty, outdoor porta potty happened to be um, on my route from point A to point B. Um, and then there is no app for that. That would be totally useful. Right? Oh, that would be so great to have a porta potty app. I hope someone listening to this um, comes up with an innovative way to communicate with the porta potty companies and then creates an app with GPS locations. The app world could really take Crohn's disease into account and conditions that other people face who have urgent needs to tend to while on the road. Actually, Allie Putnam has bought her own portable toilet that she uses for her field work. The great part about some of my field sites is that some of them are really remote. Um, and so I don't ever see another person there. Um, and then, uh, you know, some of them have like big boulders and things that are, you know, easy to to kind of hide yourself behind. Um, but, you know, like it's definitely not it's not easy doing field work um, with Crohn's disease uh, because yes, there's the, sometimes the urgency need to use a restroom, uh, but then there's a lot of pain, abdominal pain that comes with it. And there's a lot of exhaustion and um, your like the capacity to walk around a lot for long periods of times can be um, draining. You know, I am a really active person. I specifically do a lot of like, working out, lifting weights, walking and things so that I can keep my muscles like in, not in shape to be in shape, but like, so that I can keep up with some of the demands of like being out and doing field work because like as a uh, Crohn's disease, you are not so good at absorbing nutrients. Uh, so you're not really getting all the nutrients that make your whole body, your whole body healthy and functional. Um, and so like I try to, you know, you can try to eat as well as you can um, to support your strength and your endurance, um, but you can't, it's, it just doesn't come down to that. So I have to like make sure that I keep, you know, training throughout the year. Um, Cause I also do field work all year round. Um, I'm not just a person who does field work during the summer. Um, I do field work all season, every season. Her PhD research project is about modeling climate change on a small scale and in the field. One of my experiments that I'm super excited about uh, is a uh, climate in-field climate change sort of um, uh, related experiment. You know, being able to mimic climate change conditions in the field is hard because you can do that in the lab by using 
you know, uh, thing, you know, equipment to heat up water, um, or you can mimic elevated sea level by having containers with more water, or, you know, there's lots of ways that you can manipulate variables in the laboratory, but it's not as easy to do with in the field. I've got this really cool, um, tile experiment where, um, I'm using settlement tiles that are, um, square like this. This is one of them. Um, there, I have white tiles and I have black tiles, um, and the black tiles absorb solar radiation and heat up the way when you go out in a hot, on a hot day with like a black shirt on, you're a little toastier. Um, it's the same concept. Um, I've done the statistical analysis and, and the black tiles do heat up, um, by, you know, one, one and a half to two and a half, three degrees warmer than the white tiles and, and the rock. Um, and what are they, are they tiles like bathroom tiles? Like are they ceramic uh, or are oh, they, yeah, sorry. they, these are uh, made out of high density polyethylene plastic. Um, so, um, I, and I screwed, I drilled into the rock and I screwed a tile on the bottom. Um, and then I've got a, Oh, I see. So you're really giving, um, I guess, crabs or other organisms a, a way to test, do I like this location better or this location better? Yeah, exactly. So what's going to end up settling on this tile ends up being like barnacles and um, sometimes mussels and like settling sessile organisms, sometimes um, uh, seaweeds like the uh, uh, brown alga, fucus vesiculosis. Um, and so then there's this temperature logger. This, I love this logger. It's my favorite temperature logger by um, Electric Blue. It's called the Env logger. And I have the two tiles. One tile gets drilled into the rock. And then I take my logger and it's placed in between the two tiles and the tile goes on the top. And so it's able to measure the temperature that's happening with these tiles here together. Um, and it takes a temperature recording every, I have it set for every 30 minutes. And then I use my phone. The best part is that I use my phone and I just um, place it on top of the tile and it'll connect and then I'm able to download the data out of the tile without having to like take the tile back apart, disturb any organisms that are on it. And then I'm able to, um, you know, suck out the temperature data over time. So I've got, um, I've got, you know, uh, water and air temp per the tile um, every 30 minutes for the last year and a half. She devised the system of in-the-field climate change modeling by riffing on other concepts from other scientists. So there uh, there were some other researchers, Rebecca Cordes, um, who did something um, like this, uh, you know, in the like 2015, I think her paper came out. Um, so, she, you know, she kind of started some of this work and there's been some other um, researchers, um, Lathian and McAfee, who have looked at how, um, like if you use color, as a substrate, are you able to warm the substrate? And then how might that impact, um, you know, the settlement and survival of various organisms? But, um, you know, those happened in kind of different areas of geographic areas. And so this I've got set up in southern New England across the Connecticut and Rhode Island coast. Um, and so basically the question is, you know, how does increased substrate temperature 
impact the settlement survival and resulting community composition of you know intertidal marine organisms and so in theory we're you know hoping to see that or we might see a difference between the community that's on the black tile that is certainly warmer you know throughout the year and the community that's on the white tile which is you know significantly cooler um and as a sort of a proxy for how climate change you know um can impact community uh, community composition and dynamics. This experimental setup is a way to track all throughout the year which organisms react how to elevated temperatures and let's Ali Putnam look at the different communities in these mini environments. That happens all year round because organisms settle at different times of the year like one barnacle settles in in October another barnacle species settles in January mussels settle at a completely different time period um, the algae also you know spore and settle at other time periods so uh, this is a long-term experiment that I'll probably end in um, in uh, September of next year um, and then I do research in the Boston Harbor um, on a completely different project uh, where we're looking at assessing uh, the biodiversity of the inner tidal of these islands, which have only been sampled a handful of times in the last 50 years, um, so that the National Park Service, because Boston Harbor is a federal national park, um, has baseline information and also in the process of evaluating the biodiversity, we're working to develop a biodiversity um, protocol that and set of methods um, that can then be used by National Park Service to continue on monitoring after we are done with this project. She is doing her PhD research, and at one point, she will want to share some of her results with colleagues, say, at conferences. As an immune-compromised person with a chronic disease, Crohn's disease, that's going to be hard. COVID has made in-person conferences a treacherous place for her to be. One thing about my, uh, like, me being in my position right now as a a very immunocompromised person in a pandemic is that my abilities to interact with people are much more limited. Um, you know, I'm not going to conferences in person. And at this point in the pandemic, which is still ongoing, conferences and things are less and less hybrid and more and more back to being in person. COVID has created, you know, this new virtual realm here or enhanced the virtual realm that I think actually can increase um, accessibility. Like it is an, ex it, it has created more access to more people because someone who maybe is bedbound for a certain period can still hop on Zoom if they would like to to attend a virtual meeting or attend a talk that is happening and still learn um, and not have to then physically go to that space. There have been some good things that have come through Zoom. And I know people who are like, oh, I'm all Zoomed out. But like folks like me are so grateful for Zoom. I'm so grateful for Zoom. I'm so glad to be able to connect with people virtually, um, to continue to learn, to continue to to meet and interact with people in my field and outside of my field to get to have conversations like this with you, Vivian, um, you know, uh, so yes, I'm a little zoomed out sometimes, but like, I also recognize how important zoom is for, for my continued, um, forward progression in, in my career for right now.
One aspect that I wondered about is how to handle what is sometimes called an invisible disability or a less visible disability. The question then becomes, when do you as a scientist with colleagues in the lab and elsewhere share your disabilities and with whom? It can be, she says, a way to feel so very vulnerable, which can be uncomfortable. But she says sharing can also get you support you might not have known existed. It's hard, you know, because folks look at you and think that you are quote unquote normal, you know, like everything's fine, um, you know, and I just say, oh, I put on a lot of makeup to try to hide the exhaustion that my Crohn's gives me. Like I look normal, but trust me, <laughs> take a look on my insides and I'll show you pictures from my latest colonoscopy. Well, that doesn't look very normal. Um, no, but, uh, you know, like folks who appear quote unquote normal on the outside, um, you know, the, it'll go someone won't ask you like what's going on unless you then disclose. And then some people don't want to disclose what's going on with them because they've been met with, you know, um, adversity or, or lack of empathy. Um, and so, and, and also like some conditions are embarrassing or people might not feel good or wanting to be vulnerable. Um, so then it just stays invisible. And, um, you know, I think if, if you were to share um, that and not know that there were support systems that could be put in place for you, you know, because again, like not everybody knows what kind of support exists out at their institution for them. Um, and some institutions are better at, than others at making sure that that information is really readily accessible. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, you know, invisible illness, invisible disabilities uh, is a challenge um, and and one that kind of, you know, gets overlooked because you, you don't really see it. Uh, but the people living with invisible um, illness and disabilities are struggling, you know, have their own level of struggle and struggling just as, as bad and, you know, have their own challenges that need support. Um, so, you know, I I think. I think it's like about creating a space of belonging and a space of, of wealth being welcome and open. Um, and, and that like issues around disabilities and accessibility are cared about and thoughtfully, um, uh, attended to that. If though, if that is in place, like it, it can create a place for those with visible, disabilities and invisible disabilities, particularly for the folks with invisible disabilities to come forward about or or at least be able to tap the shoulder of someone about what they might be going through so that they can receive the support that they need. Because um, I think a lot of people that I've talked to who have had who have um, invisible disabilities are like, well, this environment does not feel safe for me to, to say like, oh, I struggle like with my health with X, Y, or Z, because I'm afraid of the repercussions because the environment is not um, conducive to feeling that you will be cared for. And so that's, I mean, that's a whole culture issue that needs to be, to be worked on, you know, um, within labs, within departments and programs. Navigating academia and a PhD program, that's tough. Add to that disability or chronic disease and things get tougher. Allie Putnam has some advice. 
it's hard to navigate, right? Like it's so, there are many, many, many layers of complexity for pe people with disabilities, both visible and invisible to try to navigate through. Like it's both physical, it's emotional, it's, it's uh, like professional, like there's so many layers to navigate that can be so hard. Um, and I think like, I, I just, I try to tell myself, don't give up, don't, don't, try not to get too sad or bitter like um try your best to like make a change for the people who are in your community and coming up behind you um and to be an advocate for change um so that other people have it better you know as you move on that was conversations with scientists Today's guests were Dr. Uri Manor, a researcher at the Salk Institute, and Ali Putnam, a PhD student in marine ecology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. They both talked about doing science as people with different kinds of disabilities and conditions and had, I feel, incredibly powerful aspects to share about their path. The music in this podcast is Funky Energetic Intro by Winnie the Mook, and the other piece is Paper Flakes by Raphael Crooks. Licensed from filmmusic.io and the artist's website is orchestralis.net. And I just wanted to say, because there's confusion about these things sometimes, the Salk Institute and the University of Massachusetts didn't pay for this podcast and nobody paid to be in this podcast. This is independent journalism that I produce in my living room. I'm Vivian Marks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.